One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sisters Mary and Anne Stewart, daughters of King James II and Anne Hyde, were both Queen of England, Ireland and Scotland. Mary ruled as Mary II with her husband William of Orange, while Anne ruled alone as Anne I, assigning her husband the role of Lord High Admiral of the Navy. Both women were not only highly competent, but also courageous monarchs. They were decision-makers at a time of constitutional change. They oversaw and orchestrated political and diplomatic achievements and reforms, and both proved popular with their subjects. Today we're going to explore a little bit of their time as monarchs, but we're also going to learn something about both women's personal lives, the part of a monarch's life that often remains hidden to us, their loves and their friendships. If you've seen the film The Favourite, you'll know that Queen Anne had intimate relations with women. But Anne's relationships with women predated her time as queen. And Mary too, in her youth, had strong, romantic friendships with women. With whom were these relationships? What was their nature? What did contemporaries make of them? And how should we think and write about these relationships today? What does it tell us about the culture and the court of the time? To discuss Mary and Anne, I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Dr. Hannah Grieg, reader in early modern history at the University of York. Hannah is a historian of 17th and 18th century Britain with a particular interest in gender, material culture, and the cultural histories of politics and statecraft. She's published widely on Georgian Britain. I recommend her book, The Beaumont, Fashionable Society in Georgian London. And she's also a highly experienced consultant to film, theatre and television. Hannah is the historical advisor to the sensation that is Bridgerton and was the historical consultant for The Favourite. So she is a truly excellent guest to talk about the Sister Queens. Hannah, it is an absolute joy and a privilege to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. I'm stretching our normal temporal parameters in order to kind of inveigle you onto the show in some way. But these are two really interesting people we're going to be talking about, Mary and Anne. So I'm glad you've decided to join me. 
Yeah, I think it's the first time I've been on a Tudor podcast, I have to say. <laughs> well, it's not just the Tudors, you see. We're it's not just the Tudors. The Tudors and the Stuarts and, and on into exactly. the future it's, of the court. Yeah. It's a big bag of early modern stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Mary and Anne are really fascinating, I think, as both royal women and queens. And they're the two sisters that I suppose a lot of people may not have heard of, really not as famous as half-sisters, sisters of Mary and Elizabeth I. This is another... Sister Mary and her sister Anne in the late 17th century. So they were two daughters of the Duke of York, who was the brother of Charles II. And they were brought up in the Restoration Courts in the 1660s and 1670s. And they're two sisters, and they eventually become queens. So first, Mary becomes queen after 1689. There's a revolution. There's all these things that people have forgotten. And then after her, Anne accedes to the throne as well. And so they are a kind of turning point, really, between the Tudor period and into the Stuart period, and then the constitutional change that we see into the 18th century and the Georgians. So really basic stuff. When were they born? Who were their parents? Why were they heirs to the throne? That sort of level of information is what we need to start with. Okay, so Mary is born in 1662 and Anne is born in 1664. And their father is the Duke of York, who is the brother of King Charles II. And they are brought up in the court, really, the court environs of Charles II. They are, very importantly, a Protestant family and the girls are brought up in the Protestant faith. When they are in their young childhood, their mother very sadly dies and their father remarries a much younger woman and he converts to Catholicism. So he then pursues a Catholic faith. His daughters from his first marriage are Protestant. Charles II is Protestant because he's been restored to the throne after the Civil War. And then when it becomes apparent that Charles II is not going to produce any legitimate heirs, it also becomes apparent that his brother, the Duke of York, is going to become king. And this is what happens, becomes James II. But he's a Catholic king. And this causes a lot of concern for British politicians, for the British nation, because it comes on the back of, you know, two centuries of very tumultuous religious upheaval. And there's a lot of anxiety about the nature of the king's Catholicism. And then it appears possible that his young wife may be about to produce an heir. And this causes a huge constitutional crisis within the country because there's a great fear of a kind of Catholic monarchy retaining and continuing with the crown. So there is a massive political coup or revolution where James is asked to leave the country and his daughter Mary is invited to take the throne. By this time, Mary is married to a Dutch prince called William of Orange and um, she and her husband return to the country and become king and queen. So her story of her arrival at the throne is also one of huge kind of massive political change and constitutional anxiety and religious concern and a massive shift of a kind of intellectual mentality about who is meant to be on the throne. Because we haven't really seen this before where a monarch is effectively removed by a coup and replaced by his daughter. So her story is shrouded in this kind of very important moment of political history, which is one that's not so often told, actually, as Henry VIII or Elizabeth I, but it is as interesting and fascinating as they are. And it's interesting also in that it involves a moment of deep filial betrayal in order for her to become queen. 
Yes, that's right. And her father is sent into is alive and in exile. And so for the best part of a century afterwards, there continues to be a debate, a concern, a preoccupation that the ousted royal family of James II, the Catholic family based in France, may return. And this leads in many points of the 18th century to concerns about invasions, to concerns about spies, to concerns about what will happen to his heirs from his second wife. And so it marks the starting point of a real sense of uncertainty about monarchy and its future within the country. And so one of the things that Mary and then her sister Anne, you know, need to achieve is stability and a sense of just sort of moral authority and order and calmness over politics. Because within people's living memory, there has been civil war, there has been huge amounts of constitutional upheaval. And this is what is absolutely imperative that the royal family sort of try and avoid at that moment. So Mary and Anne are, you know, there's two queens who we don't often talk about within a kind of popular culture. And yet they occupy a really important part of our royal and constitutional history. And they have these fascinating personalities and personal lives as well, which makes them all the more interesting. Well, tell me about their personalities. What do we know of their character? Well, and one of the things both of these sisters become quite known for within the history books is actually the incredibly passionate, fulsome, loving letters that they send, not to their husbands, but to the women of the court. And so this was originally something that was mostly associated with Queen Anne. So this is Mary's younger sister, and Anne becomes queen when Mary dies without any surviving children. And Anne is, became known for her very close and fiery and intimate relationships with her ladies-in-waiting, particularly um, the Duchess of Marlborough, Sarah Churchill, and another court favourite, Abigail Masham. And that sort of you know court circle has been captured most recently in the film The Favourite, which explores this idea of female power and female intimacy. And so that was often seen as Anne's story for a while. Is she was known to have had these incredibly intense female relationships and friendships. But also, you know, it was discovered that her sister Mary, too, had some very intense relationships of a similar kind. So both sisters, when they were young children, being brought up in the court of Charles II, lived mostly in a female world. And they grew up with and befriended other young women, children of the court, the daughters of courtiers, that's who they spent their time with. And they developed these very, very intense friendships and relationships, which are articulated through their letters. So for Mary, it was particularly with a young woman called Frances Aspley. And Mary began writing letters to Frances from the age of about 13. And she carried through into her teens and after her marriage to William of Orange. And these letters were discovered just within the family papers of Francis Aspley, um, letters written to Francis. And initially, they were presumed to be passionate letters between a husband and wife and a man and a woman because the two recipients addressed each other as husband and wife. But then it was found, actually, they were letters between Francis and Mary. And Mary presented herself in these letters as Francis's devoted wife and Francis as the husband. And the letters are full of 
deeply passionate expressions of everlasting love, of pursuits, of devotion, of lifelong commitment, you know, in a language which we would find to be incredibly melodramatic and powerful and romantic and as though they were in pursuit of this incredible passionate love affair. And so it seems that these two women were corresponding for many years and you know, these are not letters that are passed between people who are absent. They're not letters which are about sharing lives that are lived apart. These women would have seen each other every day. So they are letters that are the fabric of their daily lives that were exchanged between them that were these expressions of their commitment and their conviction. And so, of course, the question is, how should we understand this? Should we see this as friendship? Should we see this as homosexuality, same-sex desire? Should we see it as a kind of play-acting, a sort of future relationship with a husband? Or is it not possible for you as a historian to decide? Well, this is the ultimate question, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, historians had often found letters like this. And we know that actually, you know, we now know that the kind of letters that Anne writes, that Mary writes, are probably part of an elite world of women's letter writing. And for a long time, historians used to say, oh, this is something we would just call romantic friendship, that there is no actual sexual intimacy involved. It's just a form of expression. But then, of course, much later on, we found the diaries of Anne Lister for the early 1800s, which revealed that women are engaged in sexual intimacy and love affairs, which we would now categorise as gay or, or lesbian, and that this was part and parcel of Anne Lister's life. And so her diaries are really important for revealing that women are actually engaged in sexual acts with other women. Now, can we apply Anne Lister's love affairs to these letters 100 years before? I think we're going to be debating this (laughs) for a very long time. I think there's a number of interesting things to bear in mind. One is that there is a language of courtly love, which these letters that are written by Mary and Anne sit within, a language of devotion to a prince or a monarch, of prostrating yourself in front of your ruler to say you have an ever-dying, undying love and affection for them, that you will bestow yourself on them forever, that your body is theirs to use as they see fit. And, you know, we see this in the Tudor courts very explicitly as well, and this carries on into the Stuarts too. It's also a time of really important restoration drama and theatre And the court is a world of theatricality and court masks, which are melodramatic. They often follow a language of romance, of lust, of passion. They're often slightly erotic. And this is the world that these young women are growing up in. There's also another layer of kind of intellectual and cultural influence going on, which is a language of classical philosophy and the idea of platonic love. You know, most of these people of the court and the elite are reading classical philosophy And although we use the term platonic love today to mean a kind of non-sexual love or just a love between friends, an unrequited love, for Plato, actually, the idea of platonic love was about achieving a level of spirituality, of using love to understand the world better. And that he suggests that love has a number of different planes. One is a physical attraction. So you find someone beautiful. doesn't specify whether it's a man or woman. You just find the human body beautiful and you become drawn to them. And then through that appreciation of the physical beauty, you come to appreciate the beauty of their soul and you become interested and invested in understanding something about the human nature and the human spirit by loving their soul. And then after loving their soul, you come to love forms and states and institutions and that love is a ladder that leads you to greater intellectual understanding. 
And there is a sort of engagement with these ideas and some of these languages of love that we see circulating within the court in particular, that love is seen as a ladder, as a route to understanding, to humanity, to morality, and even to spiritual belief. All of those ideas are circulating. So then it sort of becomes easy for us to say, well, this is just a set of a language. It's just a performance. It's just a play. However... In addition to that, we need to remember that the idea of access to the royal body is really important in the court. So the royal body, the body of the monarch or the person who's going to become the monarch has a particular quality to it in that only a few people are really allowed to access the monarch's body. Only people of very high status or very privileged people or people who have power at court. And so the person who has physical proximity to the monarch is always very important within the court hierarchy. The person who dresses them or undresses them or sleeps in their bedchamber is very, very powerful and important. So the ideas of proximity to bodies is crucial. And so it's quite possible then that within these languages of love, that ideas of proximity to body, of bed sharing, of having a physical intimacy was a part and parcel of that, of those relationships. I can't see any reason why that wouldn't necessarily be a part of it when the language is so intense, the idea of these relationships is so intense, and actually the importance of friendship and bodies coming together has a politics to it and a significance within the court in particular, which is it's kind of hard to explain and hard to capture. But I think with all of those elements together, my always question is, well, why not? We always think it seems unlikely that women who are expressing these, you know, such intense emotions were engaged in sexual intimacy. But actually, but why not? Why wouldn't they? Particularly when their access to men and to male bodies is really quite strictly policed. There's an expectation that their marriages are arranged, particularly for Mary and Anne. They have no freedom of choice over their husbands. They will have an arranged marriage organised around European politics and diplomacy, relationships between European courts. But in terms of their female friendships, they have choice. They have freedom, freedom of expression, freedom to love and then to refuse. And with that comes political tensions, opportunities for other courtiers or not. It's a very, very intense competitive world and why wouldn't bodies be a part of that why would it just be you know a kind of expression a a language romance it seems that so much of the analysis of this until this recent refreshing take that you're giving us now has been determined by the way that we characterize and categorize desire and physical intimacy and friendship and such an important part of thinking about our sexuality over the last 50 plus years has been about identity as opposed to activity. And I'm not sure, well, I'm certain that wasn't the case in the 16th century. I will have to ask you more about the 17th and the 18th century. But it seems also that this idea that you're putting forward, that there's a kind of politics around bodies is absolutely crucial and something that we find difficult to understand. We struggle to comprehend that. And yet, that's a way of thinking about physicality and desire that they had that we don't. So we've got these two different systems, basically, that we're trying to sort of map onto each other. And it doesn't really work. And it means that we sort of fail to understand. Is that fair? I think it is fair. You know, it's sort of an, I think, It's an unanswerable question in lots of ways about whether or not these letters reveal that women were engaged in sexual activity 
together because we may never know (laughs) the answer to that. I don't think it's possible to find it. But maybe that's fine and maybe that's not the point and maybe it's not ultimately about that. I mean, for example, with my period, when I'm thinking about Catherine Howard and Henry VIII, the question is always, did she commit adultery with Thomas Culpepper? And in technical terms, probably not, because Culpepper says that they were going to, but they didn't get around to it. But that doesn't answer the question for me as whether she committed adultery or not. That's a kind of, frankly, quite a phallocentric way of thinking about adultery, whereas actually it might be something much more emotional for Catherine Howard. And maybe for these women, it's something much more emotional. And what they actually did in the intimacy of those beds is not really our concern ultimately anyway. But it doesn't that doesn't dictate the fullness of what is happening for them emotionally. I think that's right. And I think that, as you say, ideas about sex in this early modern period is really about an act rather than necessarily a very formal identity. And I think that what we do see into the early 18th century is a kind of emergence of what we might regard as kind of patriarchal idea of a very much more heteronormative society where there's an idea of a heterosexual marriage or you have other kinds of relationships that are not that. You're not necessarily moving between them. I mean, when we look at the history of king culture and kings and and court culture around men, you know, there's a much more long-standing kind of sense that these men are having different kinds of relationships of different categories with different kinds of people, that there are male court favourites, that they have wives, that there's different kinds of intimacy. And there's been a much more long-standing kind of acceptance of that as being part of this court world. But for some reason, the idea that this might extend to women was a little bit more delayed um, in terms of historians' understanding. But I think it becomes really paramount and interesting and important around this court culture of Mary and Anne, because Anne was sort of castigated for it after her death and became known early on in history as the queen who had these female court favourites, largely because one of those important women in her court, Sarah Duchess of Marlborough, published her own memoirs, which really were scurrilous against the activities of the queen and, you know, sort of presented her as um, in the thrall of women, of intimate with women at night, of and sort of telling the story in her own way. And so it was always associated with the court culture of Queen Anne. But actually, we see it a lot around Mary as well. And, and of course, another historian's take might be, well, actually, we need to read these letters in terms of what some people might see as rather tedious stories of constitution, <laughs> and who's allowed to be on the throne or not, and about undermining women's authority in terms of the court culture by saying, well, actually, are these women able to rule? Are they compelled by their emotions? Are they able to manage affairs of the state or not? And some of the comparisons between Mary and Anne are interesting in that Mary shares the throne with her husband, whereas Anne rules as a lone woman, even though she's married. So there's a lot of debates around what the nature is about relationships between men and women, about gender, about what authority that gives someone to the throne about their power and their position, which is all swirling around at the time. So, I mean, historians could probably write the non-sexy story that's just about constitutional history, (laughs) but we don't have to do that. Aeroplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the Patented Podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects, 
We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time. Can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. I suppose one question to try and get at how these things were understood at the time, and not from a later perspective, even Sarah Churchill's diary is clearly a later perspective is to think about who knew about these letters did people you know were other people at the court conscious of them or were these were these things that were absolutely secretive and does that give us any information about kind of attitudes to female relationships well i think the passing of letters between two women creates a privacy that's important the actual act of exchanging letters of of the excitement of that secret missive that's left under your pillow or 
around the dressing table or wherever, passing notes hand to hand in a crowded courtroom creates a degree of intimacy and privacy in a world that is not really intimate or private. It is very much stage managed within the world of the court. But I don't think that means necessarily it was hidden or a secret or something that was considered to be ashamed of. I think it fits in a world of court intrigue, of things whispered, of the exchange of secrets that we see happening in lots of different ways within an early modern court. So I don't think we should necessarily regard the privacy of letters as something that suggests it's something secretive or hidden as such, but it creates an intimacy that I think is important for understanding the nature of these relationships. And I mean, I, I'm a historian with a very vivid imagination and sometimes I try and imagine what that court world would be like. And I think that the film like The Favourite helps us get into a mindset of a court world with its fisheye lens that the director uses in that it's a world with very little privacy and an awful lot of pressure. And for anyone in that court environment, I think the stakes must feel really high all of the time, particularly at moments where there's been a huge constitutional upheaval. Mary and Anne's father has basically been sent into exile. There must always be a sense that there's another risk or drama around the corner. And I think that means that people are living under a huge amount of pressure on a stage And that infuses these acts of friendship, these intimacies, these relationships with all the more power and importance. You can see how it's a world of intense and heightened emotions. You can't ever escape. You can never just say, well, I've finished my work for the day and now I'm going to just go home. There's no division. So there must be an intensity to it that is just so hard for us to transport ourselves back into. But I think we need that. I need to understand that to understand the nature of these relationships. Actually, funnily enough, probably something that is a comparison would be working on a set on a film where people are thrown into a space together for an intense period of time. They can go home, they go to their hotel to sleep or whatever, but they are with each other, with each other, with each other all the time. Yeah, there's a lot of whispered (laughs) secrets exchanged on a film set as well. (laughs) But maybe not so many love letters, not any, not that I'm aware of anyway, but yeah, whispered secrets and intimacy. What was your experience acting as a historical consultant? I mean, you've done it a lot on various different things, but you have, of course, on The Favourite, in terms of trying to represent the nature of the court, the nature of historical female relationships. How did you work with these challenges in terms of putting them on film? Well, I don't know. I've never seen it as my work necessarily or my responsibility about what we see on screen for any drama or film that I'm attached to. I always see my job as just funneling in the history information into whichever funnel I can get it into and then something else comes out the other end and you know I would never claim responsibility for the form that it appears and you know it was my great privilege and fortune really to work a little bit with the favourite and you know for that I wasn't on set I looked through the scripts and I sent Yorgos Lanthimos a lot of history notes you'd have to ask him (laughs) which bits he took out or not I mean when I saw the film at a screening it felt to me like a court world and I you know there were lots of things I recognized about that world about the queen shouts at a courtier or Abigail Masham sneezes to get attention or all of these little things which we know from those of us who study court culture is, is part and parcel of that world I would never say that that was my authorship in that particular moment it's you know totally comes you know through the director's vision but I always see my role as just funneling as much history as possible and then interested to see what comes out the other end. 
Yeah, see what sticks. Yeah. <laughs> One other way to think about Mary's friendship with Francis, absolutely, given that she goes on to marry William, although, of course, that is an arranged marriage, is to think about this as a stage. I mean, I remember when I was in all girls' school, it was completely part of the culture that there was an older girl that you had a crush on. And that was for everybody, no matter, though many people ended up not identifying themselves as being gay. So I wonder if there's something about there being a stage here. I don't want to diminish their affection for each other at all. And that's I'm sort of hesitant to even ask the question because of that. But I wonder if there is anything to do with that and the, the culture at the time. Yeah, I think so. I suppose an, another thing to bear in mind is particularly when the letters you know, begin to become exchanged between Mary and Francis is that Mary's a very young girl when this relationship begins. So she's 13. She gets married when she's 15. She is a young girl turning into a woman. And I suppose one idea that's often mentioned is this a stage of many young women and young girls' lives and that, you know, most mothers of daughters and women who've been young themselves remember intense female friendships of, of a kind of playing out of relationship ever declaring your devoted love forever best friend forever and then breaking off that relationship in some massive moments of drama and another way of of reading some of those letters is in terms of that just kind of historical continuity and that it just becomes particularly expressed within the format of this courtly love at this particular moment I think that the culture of the court and the idea particularly when it becomes apparent that Mary and Anne probably in direct line to the throne, they do become inflected with some other elements that you know we probably can't avoid. These are not just two ordinary young girls going about their life in very ordinary ways. They are extraordinary people. And I think that is also something to keep in mind. Now, we focused a lot on the personal, which is totally fine because the personal is political when we're thinking about queenship in this period. But what else should we know about Mary and Anne as monarchs? Well, it's really important, isn't it, to remember that they're more than just these <laughs> these stories of um, female correspondences and friendships because they are monarchs and um, very, very important ones in terms of British history. So, you know, Mary comes to the throne because her father is sent into exile and she takes joint monarchy with her husband, which is incredibly unusual. I don't think it happened. It's happened previously to them and it certainly hasn't happened since. Well, Mary I and Philip II of Spain is a bit of a joint monarchy, but... OK, there we go. You see, that's why I hesitated, because I was like, I don't, you know, when was before 1660, who knows? <laughs> so so um, they have a joint monarchy. And so she presents herself as a wife and she says, I need to share the throne with my husband because I'm a devoted wife. And so they have a joint monarchy. She's only alive for a few years, unfortunately, after she comes to the throne. So the Glorious Revolution is 1689 and Mary dies in the early 1790s. So then her husband, William, is sole monarch for a few years after, until his death in 1702, when Queen Anne comes to the throne. And she has a husband, Prince George, but she doesn't take a joint monarchy. She is a queen in her own right. And her reign is marked by profound and important change in terms of it brings a union between nations, the creation of Britain, 
It creates a political world, an environment that's new. So it's a time of party politics between Whig and Tory, but about the parliament working things out rather than there being any other kind of revolutions or civil wars or coups. It's about how politics is organised within parliament. Parliament meets regularly for the first time every year from the late 1690s because of the succession of Mary and then Anne. So we have a new relationship between Parliament and the and throne that emerges that becomes our basically our modern monarchy. And Anne is a really important patron of the arts. We see a flourishing of music, of art, of culture, of kind of, you know, that's supported by the economy. It's a time of international warfare as well. So she is a warrior monarch that's often forgotten about. And so both of them oversee this profound transition between a court culture where the monarch has a huge amount of power to a court culture that's shared with Parliament in a way that creates a constitutional stability. And those kind of roles and responsibilities are often forgotten, but they sit at this turning point that's, you know, very important and they should be achieved credit for seeing that through. <laughs> so my last question is, given that we are talking in a month in which we are celebrating the Jubilee, this time the Platinum Jubilee of Elizabeth II, Queen Elizabeth II, and we're thinking about queenship a lot at the moment. What relevance do you think Mary and Anne have today? Do they have any bearing on modern queenship? Or is there other things about them that you think should just be better known because they speak to us in our current age? Well, I think they should be better known because they are at the foundation point of what I would regard as the emergence of a modern monarchy and the emergence of the beginnings of a system where Parliament has more authority over the court. They are just fascinating and incredible and powerful women whose stories are remarkably untold beyond kind of history, academic textbooks. They run states and nations and politicians and courts. And, you know, we like to think about history as a place that doesn't give opportunities for women. And, you know, this is, again, a kind of just a general wider understanding that women only become powerful with the vote in the modern age, that they're only politically interested, you know, within the like the last 100 years or something. And that prior to that, everyone was just wives and nobody knew anything about anybody. It's just absolutely not true. And particularly the courts of Mary and Anne, it's a world of really powerful female politicians, like women who have political authority, who are running political parties, who have access to the monarch, who have authority over state decisions decisions they're right there <laughs> in front of us and yet you know we tend to look over them and you know I think it can be easy because they have these really fascinating other kind of aspects to their characters and these letters between female favorites that then their history becomes written as like oh well you know it's just a lot of nonsense of women stuff going on in that 50 years but actually it's not about that and those letters are not about that it is all about power and how power is expressed in politics. And, um, and and that is what Mary and Anne should tell us about. And that's why we should remember them and study them and, and talk about them. And say something about Anne that is other than her terrible tragedies as a mother. Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, for both Mary and Anne, they didn't have surviving children, which is important for the constitutional history and, and how, and also why Anne comes to the throne and then why the Stuart um, dynasty kind of moves into the Georgian dynasty with the House of Hanover to taking over on the throne. But yes, their story is more than that of, of motherhood or not having living children. It's beyond the bounds of what we would previously seen, traditionally seen as a women's history of just wife and mother. They are powerful, powerful politicians. I think they are strategic. I think they're clever. They're incredibly well read. They, yeah, they have a 
a power that extends in so many different ways that I think it's hard not to be impressed by them. And yet, as ever, it's so easy for history to belittle them, isn't it? So I'm so glad, Hannah, that we found an area in which our areas have overlapped sufficiently. <laughs> we haven't gone before 1660 no. and we haven't gone much after 1700. So we found that happy sweet spot where we can both talk about something. <laughs> yeah. So... Thank you so much for coming on to to discuss Mary and Anne, and I hope it's inspired people to want to know more. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætter alle de der podcast og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. 